Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly the order that they were published. In this episode, we'll be beginning our multi-episode examination of the 1956 novel, The Man Who Japed. But first, let's let's go to, to Philip K. Dick's exegesis. As many of you probably know, the exegesis is this. It's these writings by Philip Dick that he did in the later mid and later seventies, um, and I think pretty much to the end of his life that explored some of the experiences he had in what year was it? I should know this off the top of my head. Nineteen seventy four, um, and basically, it's it's. A lot of his philosophy comes from the exegesis. Um, a lot of it is just speculation in his writing and kind of a, it's, a, it's a journal, essentially. Um, and he often refers back to his writing. So here's what he says. Now, what we have here, I don't have the full exegesis, as few, few do, but there's a recent, uh, you know, five, six years ago, recently published um, one volume selection from the exegesis edited by by Pamela Jackson and Jonathan Lethem and this gives us most of the main highlights I'll look at the whole exegesis um, at the end of this um, podcast run but here's what he says this all goes back to what I figured out before it is the irreal versus the real the inauthentic versus the authentic i.e. that which is being in contrast to that which only seems to so to me, it is epistemology which is involved, rooted in truth versus the lie. Throughout all my writings, including The Man in the High Castle especially, there is a preoccupation with fakes and the fake, fake worlds, fake humans, fake objects, fake time, etc. The authentic android versus the android or reflex machine is the essence of it. Again and again, I attempt to formulate criteria for what is fake and what is not fake in every area. From a comic book to a world leader to a girlfriend to an entire universe, they, things are seldom what they seem, right? It has to do with reality, testing, which is related to another theme of mine, mental illness, which begins in hallucinations and deliberate deception. V. Penultimate Truth, the Simulacrum, game, play, game Players of Titan, etc. Novels I usually overlook. And mental illness brings in Martian Time Slip, Dr. Blood Money, the Simulacrum Clans of the Elfane Moon. So virtually all my writing interlocks at this substratum. I count 21 books, including short stories, in which fake versus real is in some way the topic. 22 if Jape is included because of a number of unanthologized, plus a number of unanthologized stories. In Sheep, for instance, fake versus real operates on five levels. And then he goes on. This is the one reference to the man who Japed in the exegesis, if we trust the index, which maybe we shouldn't, but... Um, it's a long thing. I haven't read all of it. I'll try to get to it. <clears throat> now, I just put that out there because although Dick kind of references it as an afterthought here, it's almost like he forgot that 
uh, Jape was a novel he wrote, and then he's like, oh, 21. Because real versus fake is a huge theme in this this novel. It's it's one actually one of his early works that develops it more fully than any others. If we look at the previous novels he wrote, Solar Lottery has a bit of it, uh, especially with this fake assassin. The World Jones Mains doesn't really have fakeness, except in the sense that maybe the these amoeba creatures that are coming to Earth are a fake threat. But that's not a very very much of a theme there. So The Man Who Japed is a novel that's all about perception versus reality. It's all about advertising, which itself is kind of a, a an exploration or an experiment in in how to fool and trick and deceive people. It's about a character who's not who he seems to be. It's about a government that in many ways is not what it seems to be. So really, this should be higher on Dick's list. It shouldn't be an afterthought, I think. And um, I wonder if it's because what, sometimes he didn't take his early novels as seriously as, as I might do. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating novel. And I'm going to take my time with it and spend a, a handful of episodes on it before I fully um, talk through everything I think that is going on in this very, very interesting novel. If you haven't read it, I, I urge you to pick it up because, um, you know, as always, and that's one of the themes of this whole podcast is don't just jump to uh, do Android Dreams of Electric Sheep or Ubik or, or for God forbid, Valis. You need to come at them after going through these earlier works. And I think a lot of these themes are actually done better in some of the earlier works. Okay, so The Man Who Japed was published in 1956. And I think this makes it the third uh, of Philip Dick's novels that, that was published. We get something we, we don't get too much in Philip Dick's novels as a cast of characters on the front page. And I'll just read them because they, these are the major characters we have. Uh, but they're presented in a jokey way. The, the novel is, of course, called The Man Who Japed. So don't be surprised that we get uh, a bit of jokiness and and we can kind of interrogate whether these descriptions are at all what happens in the novel or are they are they accurate you know they presented kind of jokey but maybe at the end of the day these these descriptions are closer to the truth um that's of course the theme of the novel the, the joke can be real and the joke can be truth so we got alan purcell he's our main character he's the titular character Quote, his attempt at humor was no laughing matter. Next, we have Dr. Malparto. He was using science to pierce Purcell's mind or to crack it. Professor Stugerman, living amid the radioactive rubble, his individualism remained uncontaminated. Mrs. Birmingham, in the name of moral reclaiming, she raked up dirt. Myrus Mavis, he spent more than just eight years as director of propaganda. He has spent himself. Janet Purcell, if they took away her apartment... They'd take away her lease on life. Sue Frost. She bought Purcell's ideas, but she couldn't buy him as a man. So we get in the first chapter, in wonderful Philip Dick uh, form, a morning ritual, morning routine. Uh, anyone who's read uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep will, will recall that, that that novel also basically begins with a very interesting morning routine. This one's not as well developed as, as the latter one. But it's got some interesting things here. So Alan Purcell gets up, and they're in this really kind of cramped apartment. Uh, we learn he works for an agency called Research uh, Research Agencies. And what they essentially do is they make propaganda 
advertising for the state. So they're, they're, they develop what are called packets, and these are just basically advertising packets and advertising programs and ideas and memes and concepts that will then be used for the state propaganda in various ways. As with some of the other early Philip Dick novels, we get this kind of new speak language. So here it's Morak. Morak, M-O-R-E-C. This is, this is short for moral reclamation, and this is the main ruling ideology. In fact, it's almost the, the absolute opposite of what we had in The World Jones Made. In The World Jones Made, the ruling ideology was relativism, and therefore no one was supposed to state a claim or a position with any certainty. Everything is just opinions. There's no truth, essentially. So you're discouraged from, from doing any tr truth at all. In moral reclamation, there are absolute truths based on certain moral principles. And so it's a very much a, a, a religious conservative, moral conservative state. But it has some things in common with the world Jones made in that it's, it's after a war. And there's this idea of how do we rebuild our society after a war that devastated it? And what do we learn from the sins of the past? For the world Jones made, it was, we learn not to be ideological. For moral reclamation, it was this lesson that we need to stick to our, our, our moral guns. Now, what we have here is the room changing. Now, it's because they live in these small apartments, right? Now, we learn that this is like a very precious item. It's almost a family heirloom for them, right? And it's, it's, it's valuable, but it's quite small. And to make this work, then, you have the room literally changing in front of you from a bedroom to a kitchen. I think they did this in, um, what's that movie? The Fifth Element, where Bruce Willis's apartment transforms in front of him from a bed to, like, from a bed to a kitchen area. And it's just a way of using technology to allow people to live in these small areas, but make it feel like they have multiple rooms. Now, just as the room is changing, so is his wife changing. Quote, his wife Janet, with difficulty, had gotten into her slip. Now frowning, she held an armload of skirt and looked around her in bewilderment. The central heating had not permeated to their apartment yet, and Janet shivered. In the cold autumn morning, she awoke with fright. She had been his wife three years, but she had never adjusted to the shifts in the room. Right, so she's a little bit more of a static figure, not quite capable of living in this liquid world where your room changes around you. Now, Alan Purcell, our main character here, is hungover. And we learn that he spent some time previously in Hokkaido, which is not a place people commonly go. It's even presented here as a risk. Uh, we don't quite know why he went there yet, but it is introduced that he did go there and he, come, he comes back hungover. So the assumption is that she just kind of got drunk and did something in, in Hokkaido, which is one of these areas that was devastated in the war and it's kind of like one of these untouchable radioactive zones with this we we learn a little bit more about his career his what he does what his job is and basically as i already said he works in essentially an advertising agency agency they do research on basically public perception and public opinion and then create packets which would then be used by the government to spread propaganda and to do their messaging to the public and his main goal, therefore, is to promote the main state ideology, which is moral reclamation. And he's got a fairly large staff, even though it's one of the smaller firms. It's, I think it's the fourth or fifth uh, largest of these firms that are in existence. And remember, you know, when you often when you have powerful states, 
even in authoritarian systems, they're often working through capitalist agencies to get things done, right? Even, you know, Nazis didn't have government-run factories. They, there was private industry that worked alongside of it. So um, what do we have here? Um, oh, yeah, so he hires this whole staff of, of people. He's got artists, historians, moral consultants, Dictionists, dramatists, and all these people. Often, it seems a lot of the creative energy of the society gets put into these kind of agencies to produce these packets and produce propaganda. And again, it's something that we see a lot in in really existing socialisms and other authoritarian systems where artists get slightly co-opted by by the state. Now, we get a kind of a definition of moral reclamation here, and it's very closely tied to race and racial politics. Quote. Well, we learned though that the, the guy who kind of set this up, who started this, is was a military figure named Major Stryker. And there was a revolution. Moral reclamation these days had consisted of wandering troops of actors and lecturers delivering messages, and the Major had been a genius media. The basic formula was, of course, adequate, but new blood was needed. The Major himself had been new blood, originally a powerful figure in the Afrikaans Empire, the recreated Transvaal state. He had revitalized the moral forces laying dormant in his own age. So that's our background. We're going to learn much more about this figure and this character, but he's a South African, and that's very significant. So you wouldn't be wrong to assume or to think about race as a component of the moral reclamation program. Okay, husband and wife do their, their morning. Janet and Alan do their morning chit-chat. She questions him on if he went to Hokkaido or not and whether that was a good idea. And he just kind of diverts the answer and talks about a packet he did on Goethe. And we get an example of how this moral reclamation works as propaganda. We get better examples later on, but, you know, there's a lot of subtlety here. Like, does a message... How does a message support moral reclamation? Sometimes it's very subtle how it does it, and sometimes it, it's not on the surface. Sometimes the surface image is hiding or Trojan horsing a more deeper propaganda meaning here. And so here's what we got, his packet on Goethe, which is basically an ad campaign on Goethe that was going to be used as, as you know this public media. The optics made a good morek. Goethe saw his real job, prisms before poetry. But anyways, then he goes back to the question of, did he go to Hokkaido? And he just says, no one saw me. Hokkaido, we are told, is a completely devastated place. Um, and not even capable of moral reclamation, much less physical reclamation. So it's, it's kind of beyond hope. So it's kind of a wasteland. Now, Janet notices that he has like grass on his shoes, which is really rare. It's a very urban world, so you wouldn't expect people coming in with grass on their shoes, and especially not from Hokkaido, where there's not going to be any grass in life form. So he's apparently lying to his wife about where he was the previous um, day. So then he goes out and he looks at the window, and he sees the Morex Spire. So we get this very much 1984 kind of imagery with the new speak kind of condensing of words, and then this big monumental new architecture contrasted with a pre-revolutionary, I guess, architecture and, and cityscape. Now, the, this is this place, this, you have the park, and below the park is a spire, which, quote, comp comprised the hub of Morek, its omphalus. 
And then he admitted that he was walking in the park. Now, something is in this park that's very important to Morak, and that is his statue of Major, Major Stryker. Um, so with that, the morning ritual ends and the morning conversation with his wife ends. And he leaves and he runs into a woman, Mrs. Birmingham. She was actually mentioned in the cast of characters. She's the one who rakes up dirt in the name of moral reclaiming. And she is the head in this housing unit of the Parent Citizens Committee. So she's basically the political agent, uh, really about morality. And of course, with moral reclamation, you're going to focus on children and parenting and that kind of thing and citizenship. So she's the Parent Citizens Committee. And she is a woman in her 50s. She's a bit overweight. She's very nosy. She's, she kind of keeps her eyes on all the people. And that's basically her job is to spy on the people of the housing unit. And they chit-chat, and she basically wants to know where he was and why he came in late. And he delivers the same line that he gave originally to his wife that he visited Hokkaido for research for the agency. So he's trying to sell his apparently suspicious ac action as being good for Morak, being good for the state. We also learn here that you have a lot of food production uh, that's automated. You have automated rockets, automated food production, even, quote, virtually all food and manufactured items were brought in by Autofac Rocket. So we have a fully automated economy, which is something Dick likes to do a lot. And he's very much concerned with this issue of what is the future of work, you know, in a, in a society that doesn't really need people to work anymore. And one thing they're going to do is make packets for government propaganda, I, pr I presume. Now, we got a very interesting thing because Birmingham is like an agent of the state. She's a very powerful person, but she's very passive aggressive in how she interacts with Alan. And we almost have an image of a passive aggressive state, which you might expect in a, in a system based on, on morality, right? And a lot, often moral judgment comes off in this very passive aggressive way. It's like, well, we like you, you're a brother, but, you know, did you really do this? Uh, was this the right thing to do? Or, you know, maybe you need to rethink your your choices in life. But it, it, it's presented in this non-aggressive way, but there's always this very firm uh, morality underneath it, uh, ju a judgmentalism, I guess. So I'll just quote so you get the sense. It's easier to see it. She says, it seems to me that when I was glancing over the reports, I noticed your name. Oh, but perhaps not. I could be mistaken. Goodness. If... If, if so, it's certainly the first time in years, but none of us is perfect. We're all mortal. All right. So, and that's sort of how the chapter ends. So that, that brings us to the end of the first chapter of The Man Who Japed. So I'll try to pick it up a little bit. Um, this is a fun novel to go through kind of step by step, but I don't want to, in, you know, waste too much of your time on, on this, this book. He goes to work. Purcell goes to work in chapter two. And he he's on the fourth floor of this building, the Mogenlach, Mogenlach building. And he shares it with the second floor, the Beavis Company, Import-Export, the American Music Federation. And he's on the fourth floor. So again, we get the suggestion that's a rather small firm. It's not one of the larger firms that involve in these kinds of things. And this was further reinforced when we, they get word that Sue Frost is coming. Now, Sue Frost is someone that Purcell hasn't met before, but she's kind of the head of the propaganda industry uh, in the state. 
quote, she she was the administrator of telemedia. So we get another new speaky um, term here, telemedia, which was the official trust controlling mass communications. And he's never really dealt with her directly. Uh, he had worked instead with someone else who was the acting director of telemedia, a man named Myron Mavis. And he was the one who normally dealt with the packets that this agency produced and the one who bought them. Um, but meeting Sue Frost is like kind of meeting someone higher up. So it's kind of a big deal. We get a description of her. Um, quote, she was tall, rather large boned and muscular. Her suit was simple, hard weave, dark gray in color. She wore a flower in her hair and she was altogether a strikingly handsome woman. At a guess, she was in her middle 50s. There was little or no softness to her, something, nothing of the fleshy and overdressed motherliness that he saw in so many committee women. Her legs were long as she rose to her feet. Her right hand lifted to welcome him in a forthright, almost masculine handshake. End quote. But he, he does here say she's not like other women in positions of authority. But bear in mind, we do have already in two chapters in, we've met two women who are incredibly powerful and have a lot of power over uh, Purcell. So there is some um, gender here in the fact that we do, through moral reclamation, we have some degree of gender equality. Um, Purcell doesn't, can't really dominate his wife very well. He has to answer her questions. And the people he meet that basically can put their thumb on his, over him, or put their boot on his face, are, are women. So she's basically concerned about a packet he produced and it's it's a very interesting moment where we get to see how this propaganda sort of works in practice so it's it's a packet that Purcell's agency did a f earlier and it's finally kind of going through the review process and she's looking at it and thinking about it and she basically is a bit concerned about it and Quote, our theme concerns this man's attempt to grow an apple tree on a colony planet, but the tree dies. The Morak of this, I'm not certain what the Morak is. Shouldn't he have tried to grow it? Now, this is a society that's trying to establish itself in the off-world colonies. So the question is, why wouldn't you have, have this more optimistic image of a man planting a seed in the for other colonies and then it growing into a tree, showing our expansion, showing the strength of our system? And Alan responds, well, it shouldn't grow here. Quote, he should be worse. He should be working for the good of society, not off somewhere nurture, nurturing private enterprise. He saw the colony as an end in itself, but their means, this is the center. And then she agrees. She says, Umphilus, the navel of the universe and the tree. And Purcell explains further, the tree symbolizes an earth product that withers when it's transplanted. His spiritual side died. And she basically says, okay, I get that, but it's a little bit too subtle for our audience, and she basically can't accept it. She says, this conflicts with a fundamental. The committee has put a billion dollars of work in years in out-planet agriculture. We've done everything possible to seed domestic plants in the colonies. They're supposed to supply us with their food. People realize it's a heartbreaking task with endless disappointments, and you're saying that the out-planet orchards will, die, will fail. So although there's a subtlety to this packet that's kind of interesting, saying that your heart, your soul is at home, even if you're living on the frontier and you can't fully become part of the frontier, you're always going to be one with the homeland at Earth. She's much more practical saying we're trying to promote off-world agriculture, so you can't have an image of a tree dying in, in the off-world col off colonies. 
So we've got some really nice frontier politics established in this, this chapter. Now the practical arguments went out, as does the power that Sue Frost has over Alan Purcell. He talks to, well, Purcell goes and talks to his co-worker Luddy, who I, I think he's the one who helped develop this particular campaign. And, and then Alan, right in front of Sue Frost, not only apologizes and credits the state and promises a new packet, he immediately fires Luddy showing himself as as a boss and basically someone had to be penalized for this bad ad or I guess this bad um, packet. So then chapter three is set in Myra and Mavis's office in basically the telemedia building. So the center of this propaganda engine. And this chapter is is mostly about how propaganda works. We get a little bit more about the state and its image and some of the important people in in the state apparatus. One person we meet is a cousin of, of Sue Frost named Ralph Hald Hadler. Ralph Hadler, and he's dressed in this drab khaki uniform. He's a member of the so-called cohorts of Major Stryker. This is, I guess, sort of a secret police or a secret order within the state made up only of male descendants of Major Stryker himself. And these are presented as humorless, almost like machines. Uh, basically you get the idea of kind of like the secret police looking type of type of people. They chit chat a little bit about telemedia and its its function and she expresses some worry for Myron Mavis who has become quite stressed out and his position as heading this agency has aged him incredibly and she she actually thinks maybe Telemedia should be broken up a little bit so there's not so much pressure on simply one person. Quote, he's 42 and he looks 80. He's got only half a stomach. Someday I expect to phone and discover he's holed up in a health resort doing business from there or from other world as they call that sanitarium of theirs. So we got uh, an example here of an off-world health resort that will come up later on in, in the story. So we learn at this point a little bit more about the philosophy behind behind this propaganda and the packets and everything they're doing, which is kind of important because Purcell, his career is based on this. So what is his opinion of all this? Well, she asked him directly, do you approve of the domino method? And he just says it's economical, but he has reservations about it. Quote, this is what he says. He says, quote, the domino method operates on the assumption that people believe what the group believes, no more and no less. One unique individual would follow it up. One man who originated his own idea instead of getting it from his block domino. Mr. Frost said, How interesting, an idea out of nothing. And he replies, Out of the individual human mind. A rare situation, but it could occur. What we have essentially in the domino method, of course, I think the metaphor is pretty clear, right? The dominoes, first they all sort of look alike, but then one knocks over, they all get knocked over so everyone is eventually going to think the same in within a block that's targeted with this propaganda essentially what we have is a is almost a type of of meme theory where memes can enter in or a virus maybe that's the that's the term used in snow crash to talk about this kind of thing but it eventually spreads and infects the minds of all the people and but he has some doubt here he does think individual ideas are capable of manifesting themselves independent of 
Morak and independent of his own work, which is a strange thing for someone whose job it is to create propaganda to confess to, especially to confess to his boss. We learn that this off-world resort where people go to convalesce is actually a place where individuals exist. And it's one of these rare places in the system in which you have an acceleration of individualism. It's not really liked by Morak. It's seen as a bad place, but for whatever reason, they can't really control it. But this is a location where you're going to have this uh, tension. It seems that the reason it's approved of or accepted is because it's the place of moral uh, defects. Quote, this is Mavis talking. People go over because they're noose. Noose was a derisive term contracted from neuropsychotic. Alan disliked it. It had the blind savage quality that made him think of the old hate terms. And it's, he, it's written here, but it's the N-word and the, the K-word for, for Jews. Mavis continues, they're weak, they're misfits, they can't take it. They haven't got the moral fiber to stick it out here like babies. They want pleasure. They want candy and bottled pop. Comic books from Mama Health Resort. And so this is a place where people are apparently rehabilitated or redeemed or, or who, who have these individual's ideas can be fixed or repaired. But it also in practice is sort of a bastion of, of individualists. But Mavis and other people in the state just see them as weak. People who can't conform are presented uh, as weak and, and troublesome. It's also suggested that this is very common out in the frontier, the people who can't conform. So the frontier is presented here almost like, uh, well, I'm, using a, I'm thinking of a term from Bernard Balin's book, The People in British North America. And he talks about British North America as a marchland of, of Great Britain, meaning essentially it, it was, I mean, it's just a fancy way of saying frontier, but it's a cultural, moral, ethical, civilizational frontier in which people are able to escape from the control of the home country and their ideas get a little crazy. So I think in that novel, or not the novel, in that it's a, it's a work of history, but he talks about how like slavery, you know, was a product of how the colonies went a bit, got more violent and, and, and more racist. Or he talks about the, some religions, religious movements that pop up, freed from the control of the Anglican church, and they just went a little nutty. At least from the perspective of of the people back in back in Britain, and he, here's what um, where is it? Um, I wonder sometimes what they do with all the people. Alan said nobody had accurate figures on the number of renegades who had fled to the resort because of the onus. The relatives preferred to state that the missing individuals had gone to the colonies. Colonists were, after all, only failures. A noose. A neuropsychotic was a voluntary expatriate who had declared himself an enemy of moral civilization. So, the the frontier actually is a bit divided here between the neuropsychotics, the, the individualist essentially, and those who were just quote unquote failures, people who had to flee because they couldn't make it on on Earth for whatever reason. And that that's the core of the chapter. There's a little part at the end of this chapter where Hadler, the driver, this cohort of Major Stryker, gets in a bit of a fender bender, and then there's you know, what's going to happen to him about that, and they have to get the car repaired, or whatever, but just a little bit of an aside there. And that does it for chapter three, and I think that's going to do it for this episode. I was hoping to go a little bit farther, but I'm already a half hour in. 
to this episode. So um, I'll just uh, the other chapters should be go a little bit quicker. I hope uh, so. I, I'm thinking about four, five, maybe six episodes on the man who Jake. We'll just we'll just take it uh, a bit of a time, see so see a little bit at a time, and see how it goes. Um, I'm really excited to get into the novels. I've been working with the stories for so long in this podcast that I've been sometimes wondering if I'd ever get to these these novels and have some, you know, because a lot of them are really great. But the stories are going to be much less a part of the podcast from now on. We still have probably 40 stories or so to look at, um, but we'll have a lot of novels to look at as well. And, and uh, as, as I'll, I'll spend a few episodes at least on, on each novel, sometimes going quite slowly with some of the big ones. I might have to go through chapter by chapter almost. But we'll see how that goes. But I'm really excited to begin into this novels and get into some some new content. So thank you so much for listening. Um, if you've read this novel, if you have any opinions about this, what do you think of moral reclamation? What do you think of this image of a post-war authoritarian state? What about the relationship between uh, the the eight private agencies and the government, the propaganda ag- agents of the government? What is your feeling of this character, Purcell, um, who not to not to be too much spoilerly is but is revealed to be one of these individualists um is there evidence of that early in these in these early chapters beyond what he says to sue frost and um what do you think about how this moral reclamation is distributed to people and how these packets are interpreted and how does propaganda work what are the messages in propaganda and can they be read two ways are there sometimes hidden messages in propaganda that are contrary to the state or is it almost always centrally controlled and 100 percent effective so uh with those questions i'll i'll leave you uh, i'll be back with a little bit more of the man who japed um, but again thank you so much for listening please leave your comments or send me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com thanks again for listening composes my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies.